Pronto. This is Learning Matters, a bridge to practice, and I'm your host, Scott Macklin, here at Studio Yara at Trinity Western University in beautiful British Columbia. Chin Chin, Bill, and Darcy, welcome. Tell me something good. I'm really enjoying working with faculty and students from home. It just seems like a, a good outpost for me. Yep. I am really, really excited that uh, we have transitioned so well as a team to this COVID-19 pandemic that we're facing with the shift to online learning. My team has really stepped up to the plate, and I'm so excited with the work that they've been doing. Yeah. Well, yeah, besides all that, I think I'm um, really happy that I'm well set up to work from home, um, keep interacting with my students and my colleagues, and trying to work out more, too, while I'm staying at home. So today we have the special honor of having uh, a trifecta, a harmony of librarians with you, Will, on, on our podcast. I'm going to start with Darcy. Darcy, talk to me a little bit about the various roles that you get to play in your work. Okay, certainly. Well, uh, my role here at, at Trinity Western University is I'm the university librarian. Uh, so the best way to kind of explain that is I'm the, the head administrator of the library. Um, the the so a lot of things that fall under my plate is it's a lot of budget management, uh, budget planning, uh, some long-term strategic thinking, uh, kind of not really managing, but overseeing a lot of the daily functions that happen within the library, um, staff development, staff building, um, and just making sure that what we are doing is serving our students and staff and community borrowers well. And uh, so far it's been, I've been at Trinity 19 months now and it's uh, been an exciting time and full of exciting things and a lot of changes great bill how about yourself what roles do you get to play i have i'm sort of a multitasker um i'm responsible for associated canadian theological schools so i have to meet their needs i, I teach research courses credit courses for research at the graduate and undergraduate level uh, i do collection development in religion um, I do reference service, which is helping students, faculty, staff uh, with research problems, identifying materials that they can use, helping them develop research questions and so on. And uh, I do, I create some tutorials, uh, research guides, and maintain those. So it's, it's pretty broad. And if I do a, a search in scholarly and academic writing, your name shows up quite a bit. Yeah, I've done quite a bit of writing. and uh, Yeah, so we may dig into that in a bit. Chin Chin, okay. what, what roles do you get to play here? Yeah, so I also wear different hats. Um, I do reference services, uh, same as you, um, so providing reference services to our students, faculty, and staff, and also teach information literacy. So I collaborate with uh, faculty members on those one-off information literacy sessions, teaching students how to develop their research skills, and also, I am responsible for electronic resources management. So that includes all the databases, electronic journal articles. And I am also into scholarly communication. So I am the site administrator for uh, our institutional repository, Space. So thank you for joining me. I'm really excited about this conversation because one of my favorite places in the world to spend time is in a library. I want to play a little game with you, and I have two quotes. 
And I'm going to, I'm going to say those quotes and then I, I want to ask you to react to them. So Sidney Shelton wrote, libraries store the energy that fuels the imagination. They open up windows to the world and inspire us to explore and achieve and contribute to improving our quality of life. So that was Sidney Sheldon. Albert Einstein said, the only thing that you absolutely need to know is the location of the library. Everything else to him was relative, as you get. <laughs> so from the work that you've done and the roles that you get to play, I want you to talk about using those two quotes as a bit of an anchor, but particularly given this situation that we now find ourselves. We're living in the midst, or maybe it's the midst, of a pandemic. We are quarantined. We are in exile. What role do you see the library emerging in and, and, and becoming in the service of scholarship, learning, and teaching? Sidney Sheldon's quote, uh, I think, was dead on, except for the word store. Yeah, uh, libraries store. Uh, libraries really are, are more like a nexus, uh, a, a joining place where uh, patrons and librarians and resources all kind of meet together. And uh, we we transmit information. We pass information on. We guide students and faculty in how to find the information they need. And uh, so it's a much more active thing than mere storage. And COVID-19 has really, really uh, uh, exacerbated the, the challenges that students have because they can't actually come to the library. And uh, we as librarians are, are very much part of the library resource uh, beyond the books and journals. Yep. Yeah. Thinking up with what, what Bill said at the very end there and thinking of Einstein's quote, um, well, he was making that quote in an era where the physical library was where you went. And we, particularly at Training Western, have emphasized that our library is kind of where students are. So in this COVID-19 shift, when, the, when things had to happen quickly and you know, universities, not just Training Western, but universities worldwide had to shift to an online learning format very, very rapidly, uh, we discovered that the, that the library was actually very, very easy to pivot to a, an online learning model because so much of what we already do is based on um, electronic environments through things like our discovery layer, which is kind of a, the Google for libraries and our, our electronic lib guides and the fact that we do most a lot of our reference work already via email and that we'd already been transitioning some of our courses to more virtual reference because some programs only meet in module format. Uh, for us to make that switch was, 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 was very easy. So the concept that a library is you know, a, a storehouse of books and bound journals in a kind of a ill-lit room that's kind of always cold is it, it, really not what we're about anymore. And um, I think those, those quotes, you know, they get to the essence of, of what we do, but it's not all of what we do anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I agree things are definitely changing in, in this time and age. Uh, just to uh, add to that, I think, you know, when I talk to my students, I always say that we only have one physical branch, but our website, the library website is a virtual branch that serves you 24-7, you know, as long as you have an internet connection. So that serves our patients very well in this COVID-19 era. 
because I mean they can access to our resources anywhere. Like they're going back to their home countries and we're doing um, synchronized and synchronized services to our students. So I think that really put us in a very good position in this time. Yeah, and I, and I appreciate your 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 comments, Bill. This was a little bit of setup because yeah, obviously libraries perform in a very important archiving function and a keeper of memory and a, and a keeper of scholarship. But what I find really amazing, and again, I'm a year at Trinity Western, so I'm still within that new bubble. But when you walk into the library, particularly since it's been um, redone, I love walking through it because the buzz and the energy, it's not only an archive, but it's a generative place that's producing knowledge, producing scholarship. And, and it's, it's a really fascinating place just to be in and amongst the energy that's in there. I agree. That's, that's definitely there. And I've, I've noticed that buzz as well and uh, really enjoy it. Yeah. And also what the, part of what happened with the, with the renovation is the learning commons, which, uh, which was in a different location of the, of the campus moved onto our main floor. And that's provided a much better synergy between library services and, and learning commons, particularly the things that we, work closely together with things like the writing center for example and the uh, center for accessibility services uh, just to name two there are there are, are, are many more uh, the synergy that we're able to provide with that where our reference librarians when they're working with a student and realizing that perhaps the sources they found are good but they're having troubles putting it together as far as structurally in a paper or project we can send them over to the writing center where those experts can take care of that and uh, so that, that ability to work together as a team has definitely improved with the renovation of the, the main floor. Chin Chin, I, I want to start with you with this question. One of the fun things I get to do with this podcast is try to walk back into uh, uh, guest history, if you will. And I'm very interested if you could talk about an influential teacher, and that teacher could be in the classroom or out of the classroom, but someone who, who influenced you in, in, in a learning uh, arena. Yeah, I could think of uh, perhaps my history teacher back in high school. I mean, um, she was nothing too very special, but I, to this day, I still remember one of the tips that she shared with us in class. I remember she was saying that uh, while she was preparing for big exams, when she goes to um, test books, and she will always highlight like just one word or one short sentence, really the essence from the contents. So that really spoke to me because I'm one of the persons that I want to highlight every single thing that I right. think is important, but ended up they lose the meaning of highlighting things. But I think she really emphasized that just highlight maybe almost two words or just short sentence and keep going back to the key point and they really help you to memorize stuff. Because I mean, in history, you have a lot of things to, uh, to memorize for. So I, I do, I really uh, appreciate that. I still uh, I'm still using this, um, you know, technique that she's uh, she's uh, she's taught me. And when I go through my academic works, or even when I do my, you know, daily devotions, I I, I tend to use that. So mm -hmm. I think you know, just the little techniques that start with me, because I appreciate those kind of very practical and useful tips in in the learning process. Yep, Bill, how how about you? Um, mine, strangely enough, was a was a history teacher in high school as well. Mm -hmm. um, he he had some very unique techniques. Uh, he would ask a question, 
and guide the class actually set us up uh, to uh, go down a path that we hadn't really thought through very well and then challenge us on the implications of what we were actually saying. And uh, along the lines of, do you understand that if you go down that road, this happens? And uh, uh, that style of teaching uh, taught me to question things, to look at greater implications uh, beyond everything that's, that's surface. And uh, I really appreciate the kind of teaching that he did, and it had a profound effect upon me. Yeah. How about you, Darcy? My grade 11 social studies teacher, which is also roughly history. Uh, so we're noticing a trend here, I guess, with, with librarians. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, t- I'm keeping notes. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> what, I, what I appreciate so much with this teacher, although we didn't, I didn't appreciate it at the time and no one in the class did, is when we would ask him a question in class, he would never give us a straight answer. He would always, he wouldn't answer it directly. He would always encourage us to go find the information for ourselves. We need to be able to find this answer yourself. I think he was probably doing inquiry-based learning long before it, it really be had, 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 had a handle to it. And, and that experience in that class set me up very well for a, a life of kind of inquiring, of learning things for myself. And that works out well as in, li- in library work because we're guiding and taking our students down a path where we don't necessarily want to give them the answer. Here's right. the information that you can use to help you formulate your answer to your research question. So on, on, that, on the idea of guide, I think my son was seven years old at the time and it was Halloween and he was trying to decide on what uh, his costume would be. So I started asking him, well, what, what what, what, what superpowers do you want to have? And he was going through the litany of flying and strength and invisibility. And they said, you know, Papa, your superhero power is to be able to find a good sandwich. I thought, okay, that's a good one. But then he said, you know what? I know what I want to be. I want to be a librarian because their superpower is they may not know the answer, but they know how and where to find it. And that's a superpower, right? I went, that's great. (laughs) Pretty good. Yeah. So I'm wondering within the context of your becoming in your career, at what point did become becoming a library seem to be the path that you wanted to take? (laughs) I'll, uh, I'll I'll start off with this one because my story is actually a very, a very specific one and it might take, take a little bit of time. So if I'm dragging on too long, just let me know. Um, my first degree after high school was, uh, was at a, a Bible college, Rocky Mountain College in Calgary, where I did my first degree. Mm-hmm. And coming out of high school, I didn't have a really clear career path. I thought I would wind up going to music education because I played in high school bands my whole, my whole educational career in high school. And it just it became quite apparent in my first semester that music was going to be a nice side hobby, but it was not going to be the way I was going to make my living. So you know, what do I do? Uh, I never felt the call towards teaching, um, at least specifically teaching. I never felt the strong call towards church ministry. But here I am in a, in a Bible college, kind of now in my third, fourth year. Actually, it was my fourth year, trying to figure out what to do. And I had to take this class to graduate. It was a required course. It was called Introduction to Counseling. And I was a biblical scholar major, and I could not figure out why I had to take this class. It was, it was an absolute waste of my time. Why, do, why can I not take a 
biblical studies class. I'm a Bible scholar major. Of course, I say that in, in the hubris of, of youth, right? And it was through that class, and particularly through an assignment where we had to do an annotated bibliography on 30 items on an on a sorry, we had to do an annotated bibliography on a topic in counseling, any topic we, we, we wanted, and I wanted to do something interesting. So I actually picked sports psychology. And so I wound up spending hours upon hours upon hours at the University of Calgary Library across the street from Rocky Mountain College, going through bound journals, wandering up and down the stacks, looking for material. I've often thought that if I knew, if I knew then what I know now, I could like wrap up this assignment in about two hours on a random Tuesday afternoon. But of course, I didn't know. Uh, but through that experience, um, I realized I really love doing research. And not only that, I really loved helping other people do research. And so I remember very, very clearly, I was working on, not this assignment, I was working on a different assignment at my college's library. And it was Friday morning, and I put my pen down, and I looked around at the stacks and the books, and I looked around, and that was the moment. That's what it was. My calling is to be a librarian, and that never changed from that moment on. And uh, that's how I started on in this career. Cool. Chin Chin, how about yourself? Yeah, uh, so I was working at this uh, corporate company's library after graduate from my first master's degree that was uh, in Pennsylvania. Because it was a big company, so they had a library, right? They called it Information Center. But I was working as an instructional designer at that time. I was doing the CBT's uh, computer-based training materials. And then after working there for about three years, and uh, one day I was thinking, oh, maybe I want to go back to to grad school. And then I find out that my colleagues, they all they all have this uh, MLS degree. I didn't know that to become a librarian, you actually need a master's degree. Um, so I, that got me interested because, I, I mean, from the time I worked there, I kind of noticed, I observed what their uh, work responsibilities and they were searching for patterns and looking for information for different users. And I felt... I mean, sort of similar to what Darcy mentioned, I, I really like um, helping people find information. Like that gives me, um, you know, satisfaction. So I felt like you know, maybe that's a path I can pursue. So then I, you know, went back to library school and got my degree and uh, became an academic librarian afterwards. So yeah, I, I never regretted it. I really love my job. Yep. How about you, Bill? Uh, like a lot of librarians, I never planned to be a librarian, but uh, here I am. Uh, I went to Africa with my wife to Nigeria for a couple of years uh, between 79 and 81. And uh, while I was there, um, having had a little bit of experience with the seminary librarian uh, when I was doing my education, uh, I realized that their library in the theological school was a disaster. Nobody had wanted to do anything with it and students couldn't find anything. So I, I organized the library, created a catalog, even though I didn't have any training in, in it. And uh, when I got back uh, to Canada, I had a term teaching appointment uh, at Northwest Baptist Seminary, which is not part of Associated Canadian Theological Schools. And that was going to end in a year and a half. And uh, just about that time, their current librarian uh, was leaving that to go into full-time teaching. And so they, they said, well, you know, here's, here's an opportunity. If you go off to UBC and get your master master's degree uh, in library science, then uh, you could come back and be our librarian. And it just kind of hit me just at that moment as they asked me that uh, for much of my life, I'd been involved with libraries. And it just seemed like a perfect fit. So, Bill, I'm going to 
turn this next question to you. As an academic librarian, why do you hate Google so much? That's an interesting question. A lot of people think I hate Google a lot because I'm always saying Google this and Google that. Uh, actually, librarians, truth to tell, we use Google every day. We use Google all the time. Yeah. Um, the problems with Google are, are multitudes of, of them, but uh, uh, there are a few that uh, stand out. Uh, first of all, Google's an answer machine. Uh, it's intended to provide you with factual information about whatever, uh, a review of a new car, a uh, Wikipedia article, uh, recipe, a YouTube video so you can figure out how to fix whatever. Uh, it's not really engaged in what academia does. Academia uh, is a problem-solving and conversational kind of approach to knowledge in which people are seeking answers to questions, they're debating with one another. Uh, Google focuses on, on more of the factual kind of stuff. Uh, the second thing is uh, that about 80% of all of the academic information that's available is not available through a Google search. It's available through logins, passwords, uh, uh, paywalls and that kind of thing. Uh, a third thing is that Google is an absolutely terrible search engine. Uh, it's, it's a horrible search engine. While their relevancy ranking is pretty good, they have no way of limiting the results of a search. Uh, anytime I see a search engine that has 2 million results to my search, I know that that's bad. That's really bad uh, because I can't even begin to address that. But even though Google only shows you the first thousand results, uh, most people only choose the first five. And so they're depending on computer algorithms to tell them which are the most relevant. And uh, a fourth thing is that uh, Google is really uneven in the kinds of resources it brings up. Uh, the quality is very difficult to determine. Uh, anybody can post anything on a website. Uh, it's, it isn't rocket science. And so you got conspiracy theories, you got you know, Twitter and Facebook with all kinds of craziness there. And to find reliable information is really difficult with Google, uh, especially when that information has to pass a uh, professor's scrutiny. Yep, yep. I still remember one of my favorite, when I flipping through index cards and searching and then looking at the back and, oh, metadata, right? I, yeah. I, maybe, maybe I'm kind of a geek on that. Or being able to just walk the stacks and finding that book that I didn't even know that I was looking for. How, how do, you know, the way that databases are used approximate that sort of um, query modality? Um, as far as browsing, it's not, not as much the case that databases will be able to do that. Yeah. But they will be able to surface things that you ask for. Uh, one key advantage with an academic database, beyond the fact that it's academic, so the material is more academically oriented, uh, is the fact that you can use limiters to nuance your results. So you can take uh, you know, a, a subject that will give you 12,000 books and articles and narrow it down to the top 85 by using things like limiting by subject, limiting by, uh, you know, is a scholarly article or a ebook or whatever. Uh, you can focus it down, take several steps and get it down to a place where you actually have stuff that is uh, really useful to you. Uh, those 85 are all relevant to exactly what you want. You can't do that with Google. So even though the process may be 
more complex. The complexity is your ability to hone in and shape the query that you're look what you're looking for. Yeah, simplicity is an illusion. <laughs> uh, anytime I see a database with one search box, I realize that the user is going to have a world of trouble once the results come up. Yeah. Because a single search box says there's no nuancing here. You take what we give you. You live with it. If you don't like it, try a different search. If you don't like that, try, you know, and go on and on. Uh, a simple search box really is a great illusion. It's simple at the beginning, and it's a mess once you get in there among the results. I, I, I prefer a database where you can actually, uh, you know, take a few steps. It's not that hard to use. No. Uh, take a few steps to narrow down what you are actually looking for and tell the database exactly what it is. Right. So, so Darcy, when, when, when I open up my wallet, I think one of the most valuable things in that wallet is my library card, which is right next to my driver's license. And oh, you know what? I had a study to get my driver's license and I had to take a little exam to get my driver's license. Anything that's worth doing well is worth learning how to do well. Talk to me about the, what the library does to support its users and in, in their ability to use the library well. Yeah, certainly. Like, uh, I think one of the most key things we do, um, there, there, are, there are some things we do that are very visible to students. And when the, our reference libraries, the people that sit at the research help desk and are going to classes and do the information literacy sessions where doing exactly what, what Bill and Chin Chin do, which is teaching people, teaching students how to use the databases, how to formulate the research questions, how to take a, uh, how to take the research question and then nuance that into, into something that they can work with and find resources are. That's very much the, the, what, what the student will see very much publicly. Um, and and they, they do excellent work at that. And we have a, a, a very, very, very high quality team of, uh, of reference librarians that will go over and above what they do. Like, like the, I, I'll get emails that come through at about 10 o'clock at night and they're still answering reference questions. Like, folks, it's, it's time, to, time to quit for the night. Yeah. Uh, but then there's a lot of other work that happens um, at the back end that, that, that a, a lot of people don't see. And we have uh, both a, a systems librarian and a cataloging librarian uh, that will be, that are working providing that, med, that metadata that you were talking about earlier. Uh, so when someone is searching our databases, they can find it using uh, what's called controlled vocabulary. So, so key search terms that will enable things to link link disparate terms that may not all use the same terms into one constant search. And our systems librarian takes care of making sure all our systems work well. And she does a fantastic job making it as easy as possible for us for students to go through our discovery layer and access our, our databases. Our, our cataloging librarian primarily works with our, our print works, make sure that all our, our, our print books are cataloged correctly. And, and these are two people that our users may not see because mm -hmm. they tend to do a lot of their work on behind their own. Behind the scenes, yeah. Behind the scenes, but what they do is very valuable. Uh, we've got a lot of other a lot of other people that do a lot of work behind the scenes. Um, we have an acquisitions uh, technician that also does interlibrary loans, and he's the person that will work extremely hard to find it. First of all, find us the best deal on a on a on a on a, on a book, but also. Um, like any 
university library, we don't have everything that's ever been printed or published. It is impossible, almost impossible now for even the largest research libraries to have everything. So we do what's called interlibrary loans. You don't have it here, we can access it from, you know, University of Alberta, University of Saskatchewan, and we mail items back and forth all the time. We'll send electronic copies back and forth all the time. And, and Ken and one of our other staff members are, is our key in making sure that that happens well. Again, a student doesn't see that. They place a request through our online form and it goes off to these folks and they just do their work behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, also, our borrower services uh, team, uh, they are kind of the, more the front face of the, of the library. They'll be often be the first people uh, that someone sees. So when someone thinks of, of library staff, they often will think right away of the person behind the desk where you come up with the card and put it and like take out this book. Uh, that's our borrower, borrower services team. And they do a fantastic job of providing a welcoming atmosphere for students. They'll point them in the right direction if they're having challenges looking what they're doing, what they're looking for. Um, they are excellent at what they do. And then we also have some specialized uh, collections as well. So we have the Curriculum Resource Center. That is, that is uh, a specialty collection for our education department. And the person who's in charge of that keeps right up, right up on top of educational requirements, curriculum requirements. So there's that specialized connection with the education students. And then our archives and special collections, um, which preserves the institutional history of the, of the university, but also has some specialized collections and some specialized archives that, uh, that we're the only people that have these, these papers. So we'll actually have researchers come from far and wide to access some of these, these documents that only we have. And I'm, I'm very excited that we'll be able to expand that quickly. We just uh, uh, took in a collection of uh, works by C.S. Lewis, uh, so which are, are very rare and, and very, very, very unique to us. And so we're going to be looking forward to being able to roll that out and uh, perhaps become more of a hub of, for uh, inkling study research in Canada because of our connections with the Inklings Institute based out of Trinity Western University. Uh, so we do a lot of different things. And, and it's, it's, the team is so, the team is very dedicated to working with students, working with faculty, and making sure that we get the right information in the right hands as timely as possible. And I've got full credit to my, to my team. They just... They work so hard at what they do, and often I think that I'm just kind of I'm just an organizer, and I just let them go, and away they go. One of the things I love about this podcast is I get to learn things. So I'm going to admit my own vulnerability in the sense of things I don't know. Did you say Inkling Institute at Trinity yeah. Western? Yeah. And, I, and I know who the Inklings are. I mean, that's amazing. I didn't know that existed, and I didn't know that you have a C.S. Lewis collection coming. We might have to have a special podcast just about that because that's amazing. Yes, yes the, uh, the Inklings Institute of Canada is, is run out of the English department, actually. Okay. And, uh, so they, uh, they, would, they have, uh, do regular seminars on the Inklings Institute and are heavily involved in uh, advancing scholarship and, and research in the Inklings being, um, oh boy, I'm not sure if I can get them all right, but... Uh, the English authors C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, George MacDonald, and I can't remember who the fifth one is. Yeah, I got to do my graduate studies work in, in Oxford at the Center for Medieval Studies, and I would spend time at the bird and the baby or the eagle, yeah. eagle and the child, the pub where the inklings, and you can actually see on the 
table, their names and notes etched in. So, you know, I got to sit there at least where they sat and I was like, Oh, so that's, I didn't know the inkling Institute of Canada was at Trinity Western. So I'm, uh, I can't wait to get back on campus and find out okay. who these inklings are. And we'll, we'll share a cup of tea. <laughs> Great. Hey, Chin Chin, I, w- I want to talk a little bit about and have you talk about, you know, uh, Darcy mentioned the deal. <laughs> What's the deal in getting collections, getting books? Talk to me about open access. What, what are the benefits of open access and how has open access movement come along? Yeah, sure. So I think the open access movement has started back in the 1990s. Uh, it just uh, it started to grow from there because of the internet has become widely available and the online publishing has uh, taken place as well. I think there are different forms of open access, uh, including like open source, open courseware, open textbooks, open mm-hmm. journals, and open educational resources, etc. So when we talk about open access, we're really talking about uh, providing free and restricted online access to scientific discovery. Um, so for individual researchers, I think uh, open access journals in particular, it promotes social good by providing just equitable access to research output and scholarship. And it also accelerates scientific discovery because there's, there's no paywall. Um, and it also helps to improve education because anybody can access the content. So for um, scientists, uh, they can actually reuse some of the existing research models and to build upon uh, the models and uh, advance scientific discovery from there. So I think that's at a society level. I think for the library, um, open access means cost saving. Darcy can tell you how much money we spend each year just subscribing to different databases and different journals. So, so with open access content, we're saving big bucks. We're saving a lot of money. Um, I think in this area, we can think about how we can provide better access to the content that we do have and how we can cut uh, costs, uh, basically subscription costs uh, as a library. And I, I think there are just different uh, sides of open access. As an institution, um, I, I mentioned uh, earlier that uh, we have acquired uh, institutional repository, uh, which is called Two Space. So basically, this is a consortia deal uh, we have purchased from a local uh, provincial pro- uh, consortia. So the software infrastructure is called Islandora, which is o- also open source. Uh, we started having this uh, institutional repository since 2016. So uh, I started working at Trinity since 2016 as well. So I've been a site administrator for this uh, institutional repository, which is an open repository. Uh, part of the reason we acquired this was because of the tri-agency's uh, open access publishing mandate. So starting 2015, uh, the Canada, Canadian federal tri-agency uh, funding bodies have required all the uh, publicly funded uh, research outputs to be made available within 12 months of this uh, publication. So there are different ways for people to fulfill this mandate. Uh, one is that they can deposit their author-accepted manuscript, which is sometimes we call postprint of mm-hmm. the publication to a uh, open access repository. So that could be an institutional repository or that could be a discipline-based repository. Uh, so having institutional repository ourselves, our researchers uh, funded by Tri-Agency can deposit their copy of the uh, research output to to space. So that's one option. And the other option is that they can also just publish it in an open access journal or the reputable journal that has an open access publishing option. 
So are different two, there are two ways for them to fulfill the uh, child agencies open access publishing model. So uh, as for two space, if you go to two space right now, you can find uh, we have about 150 student physicists and dissertations there. Uh, and another part of this is we really want to showcase Trinity Western scholarship via this portal. Um, so I've been encouraging faculty members and researchers to deposit their other certain manuscript of the publications there. Um, so that you know more people uh, can access the research output, and uh, that's part of our community scholarship in general. Yep, yep. And and one of the things I like to point out, and thank you, as we made the move in spring, you know, we had two days <laughs> to shift our instruction and our classes to online, and and we did that. I think as a community, as a faculty, pretty well given the circumstances. Then we had two weeks to think about what we were going to do this summer. And in my summer course, because of that move, I was really thinking about the cognitive load my learners were experiencing and the cost factor that they were experiencing. And the textbook for the course that I taught, you know, my, my, the kids would say was hella expensive, right? And one, so there was a cost and two access to get that book. So I was able to work with the librarians, you all, to come up with alternative readings that were free and accessible, and I found actually of higher quality and merit than just by sticking with the textbook. So one, I want to thank you for that, because that was a great service, but that's like one of the, that's the type of work and support that you all provide. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank yeah. you. It's actually talking becoming a trend in in academic libraries and universities, and and Chinchin can probably also expand on this. But the open educational resources movement, um, mm -hmm. as the cost of textbooks has increased exponentially, um, you know, the cost of textbooks uh, in some cases can actually be more of a detriment to students uh, when they're pursuing their educational career than the cost of tuition, you know, particularly at, at, at public universities where the tuition costs are lower than, than, than others. Uh, it's the cost of textbooks. That's, that's the real problem. And so the move towards open educational resources, uh, where you have a textbook that is, that is either created by a single author or created by a number of authors, but that is openly available to be used free of charge um, by, by, by anyone uh, has really shrunk the costs of, the, of, of higher education. There's a, a sister institution uh, in the Lower Mainland here, Kuala Polytechnic University, that has an entire degree uh, where the entire degree, uh, make sure I have this right, uh, the entire degree can be done through open educational textbooks where there are no textbook costs whatsoever. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's right. And, and and you can check me if I'm wrong, but I believe that institution also has a, a vice president or a vice provost of open access education. So they actually have yep. personnel in place with that. That is part of their principles. Yep. Yes. Okay, Darcy, Bill, and Chin Chin, we've come to the part of the show where we get to uh, spin the Yara wheel. Y'all ready to give it a spin? Sure. Okay, try. here we go. Which living person do you most admire? What is it that you most dislike? When and where were you happiest? Which historical figure do you most identify with? How does your faith show up in your teaching? What is your greatest extravagance? 
What is your most treasured possession? Which talent would you most like to have? What is your greatest fear? Okay, Darcy, we're going to begin with you. And it landed on which living person do you most admire? Living person do I most admire? Well, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to say, this is a little bit of an obscure obscure reference um i i'm a cyclist by hobby and so my the person right now that i admire the most is actually greg lamont who is the uh currently now on on record the only american winner of the tour de france and and the reason why i admire him so much is because of the stance he took against against anti-doping um in the face of of extreme pressure and extreme um a detriment to his personal business, to his his personal image, and to his his actually his reputation, and that uh, his uh, his stance has never wavered. And I hope I'm not proven wrong in the future that that something comes to light that that uh, he wound up actually doing something that was not not uh, not legal by by the rules. But uh, as of right now, he's probably because of his strong ethical stance, someone that I admire admire the most. Cool, Bill. It landed on when and where were you the happiest? You can always say childhood because that, that works really well. Yeah. Um, uh, you can also say now uh, because life as is experienced through all of the pain and trials and tribulations. Uh, you come to a certain point where you say, you know, here's my life now. And uh, I think I'm probably happiest now. Um, man may we all be so lucky to have that answer that's awesome chin chin it landed on which talent would you most like to have wow i think i have so so many (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think i can think of uh maybe a talent of uh being multilingual you know uh well, I speak Chinese and English, but I know some people that are really multilingual. They speak like several languages, right? Because I, I, I love traveling. I, I like to explore different cultures and new places. So I feel like if I have multilingual abilities, I can go you know, anywhere that I can interact with people in their native town. That would be so cool. Yeah, that would be very handy, very wonderful. Speaking of traveling, and I know your answer may be Trinity Western Library, but I'm wondering if the three of you would think about is there a f- favorite library that you've been to that, that you would like to share? Yeah. I think from an aesthetic point of view, uh, Mount Angel Library in Oregon, which mm. is, uh, uh, what is it, uh, Dominican Library, Dominican School. Uh, the design of it is, is quite amazing. It's, it's arranged like spokes of a wheel. And uh, it's it's really, really, all the stacks go out from a central place, like spokes in the wheel. And uh, it's really quite an amazing place. It's up on a hill, of course. All of the Dominican schools are up on a hill, including the one near my house here. Uh, and uh, uh, that library is, is really quite amazing. I was, I was just really flabbergasted by it. So I think there would be a connection there with Darcy's upholding of Greg Lamont and cycling. Yes, so yes. maybe, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, although I don't believe Greg Lamont is from a faith background at all, so so okay. that's, uh, something to take into account there. And in my case, uh, the Boston Athenaeum in, in uh, Boston, Massachusetts, is uh, one of the ones that I've been to, and it's one of the uh, 
kind of the first what was called the subscription library. Uh, so not so kind of a precursor to a public library. Uh, subscription library is one where someone had to pay a membership fee uh, to. So not just like a card, it was like an annual fee to be part of the library. It was one of the first ones in uh, in North America, and uh, to go in there and realize. The, the history behind this this building is is very significant. Um, we I, I didn't get to see a lot of the, the really back end stuff, but just even the public tour that we were on, the um, just the, the the presence of the it just it just had that feeling of I could spend several hours here just reading anything that they put in front of me. Well, in my case, I thought about my own uh, undergraduate university, um, in Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. I mean, we had a beautiful, beautiful campus. I remember spending hours and hours in the library. I was told that our campus was the most beautiful in Asia, like, you know, the, uh, around the universities at that time. So uh, what is unique about this is that there's a uh, five story, I think, facing the ocean, Clearwater Bay, like, you know, glass. Oh, yeah. And it's just very soothing and very comfortable and you just want to it makes you want to spend hours and hours there reading and studying yeah so that's my memory back from college years <laughs> yeah I, I mentioned i got to do graduate studies in oxford in the bodling library i had uh, an essay that i needed to write on the new atlantis by uh francis bacon so i went to the library i had my library card and I, can I check out this book? And they're like, come back tomorrow. I said, oh, no, okay. So I come back tomorrow, and then this guy, he looked like Lurch from the Adams Family. Follow me. And he, I had to follow him, and I was like, down the stairs, down the stacks, around the corner, into this room, open this creaky door, sit down, and he brings out this leather-bound volume and sort of unwrapped the, the leather-bound and opened it up. And it was like it was like the edition that Francis Bacon had wrote in the marginalia, right? He had wrote in the notes. I'm like, holy, you know. And I was, so I pull out my highlighter. Mind if I take some notes? He's like, stupid American. No, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't don't joke with li librarians in the bod. It just it didn't go over very well. But you know, the the weight and the access to that script. Um, yeah, I could have just read the paperback and got the same information, but there's the, the context, right? And the weight of it just brought so much of that uh, to life. It was it was really inspiring and perspiring, I guess you might yeah. say. <laughs> and and actually, to uh, to to pick up on that, um, one of the things that's happened in library. In, in library work is because of emerging technologies, those older, older books are, are starting to get new life mm -hmm. uh, as, as not for research. Um, I'll, I'll use an example here at the uh, university of Calgary in the, in the Taylor family digital library, they have a data visualization studio has very high resolution cameras. And, and what they've been able to do is take some items out of their special collections area. Uh, so some very old rare books and, through the high resolution cameras they have, they're able to actually um, find marginalia, so like handwritten notes on the sides that because of UV lights and the like and ink has, has faded from, from, from eyesight, you wouldn't be able to see it. But because of the high resolution cameras, they've been able to bring those back up, up to life and have actually been able to produce some, some new research uh, on, these, on these items that, that no one would have been able to do without the emerging te technology that we have available now. 
Yep. No text could ever totalize a context. I want to walk a little bit into uh, present day and have you all talk about current work or current projects. But I want to start with Bill. Bill, you teach and write in the area of information literacy. What is that? And and what are you trying to accomplish? <laughs> well, in a, in a very simplistic way, I could say it's teaching people how to use databases, but that's really not what it's about. Uh, it's about inviting students into the information environment, helping them understand it, helping them to understand how information works, how they can develop problem-based uh, queries for the research they want to do, uh, find resources, evaluate those resources, and use those resources effectively. So it's, it's really a broad continuum of a lot of stuff. Is there anything that you're currently writing on right now that's uh, in process? Uh, I do a, a column every two months for a magazine in the States called Online Searcher, uh, in which I deal with information literacy issues. Uh, right now I'm working on a, on a column uh, on a new graduate level information literacy course that we're developing at ACTS. Uh, beyond that, I'm doing revisions for the seventh edition of my uh, textbook, Research Strategies, Finding Your Way Through the Information Fog. Ah. And I'm working very hard on that. It's very difficult in the information literacy field uh, to do an update and a revision because so many things change in the space of three or four years that you're pretty well rewriting the thing. And I've added another chapter uh, in this one on the whole fake news, fake mm. ideas. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. How to address that uh, as someone trying to work with information. Do you, do you play with the metaphor of, of, of a lighthouse in your writing at all to cut through the fog? <laughs> uh, well, sort of. But, uh, yeah, uh, you know, when I first developed that title, it was back in 2000. And there wasn't really all that much of an information fog. It was mainly in the minds of students and other people. Uh, but now, uh, everything is an information fog. We are, we oh, are yeah. in, uh, trying to navigate our way through and hearing voices and wondering what they are and what's true and who's, who's guiding us correctly. Uh, it really is a fog. Yeah, and this is a way oversimplification. So I'm just allowing saying oversimplification. But if we look at, you know, with the advent of the Gutenberg Press, that overcame what you might call a knowledge gap. And yeah. with the advent of the combustible engine, that dealt with a power gap. And with the internet, you might call that we crossed a distance gap. Right now, I think our gap is a trust gap. Who do yeah. we trust? How do we know we trust it? Um, how do you think about providing, how do learners get better, how do learner, how are learners better able to trust a source? First of all, I think they have to recognize the role of confirmation bias, mm. which is that if a new piece of information comes to us, uh, we tend to filter it through our existing beliefs. If it accords with our beliefs, we're not going to check it out that much. We're just going to say, oh, well, that's right. Yeah, the uh, echo if chamber. Yeah. Uh, if it doesn't accord with our beliefs, we're going to reject it. And uh, so we have to overcome that. Uh, but we also have to think about you know, criteria for evaluation. A lot of our students do not say that the number one criterion for evaluating is uh, who put this out? What are these people's qualifications? Uh, why should I believe what they're saying? 
And uh, uh, so, you know, simple things like that can be very valuable. Uh, checking information against other pieces of information, making sure you're not in a filter bubble, which is that uh, everybody in the circle of that information has the same view on it. And so they're just repeating one another's work and there's no outside person challenging it. And you see this, of course, with the various news networks in the United States where, uh, you know, this one's right wing, this one's left wing. Yeah. And, you know, often they're not speaking to one another or challenging the views of one another. And so I urge students, you know, watch your filter bubbles. Uh, you may be just hearing the same thing over and over because you're in a circle of people that are saying the same thing over and over and you're not seeing the other side. Yeah, it's true. Good library advice is good life advice. <laughs> Chin Chin, how about you? Are, is there, are, are, what particular projects are you working on right now? Well, I'm working on several video tutorials um, for different courses, like preparing for the fall. Uh, so that's something that will be ongoing for this summer. And I'm also on different task force uh, uh, as part of the university's uh, COVID-19 initiatives. One of it is the technology initiative, a technology task force. So I've been looking into different like video editing tools, uh, you know, different technologies, hardware and software um, involved. And just on the side, like I'm still kind of, you know, promoting and pushing the use of OERs or open access. So I think we mentioned that like I've uh, come up with uh, different resources for the uh, virtual labs and simulations and trying to uh, just, you know, introduce uh, faculties to different like uh, open textbooks or OERs in general. So I think, I, I mean, sometimes it's, uh, it could be slow to change our academic culture, right? Because I mean, uh, when people think about free, uh, think about free or open, they still have the misconception or skeptical about whether this is of good quality or not. So I think it really takes time, going back to the open access uh, topic again, to change uh, people's mindset sometimes. It really depends on the discipline areas too. So that's yep. something that would take a, a longer process. But I think you just by talking about uh, open access and OERs in general, it would generate some tractions and interest along the way. Yeah, one thing you might say about this catastrophe that we're living through, but in the context, at least my own teaching and learning, it's given me pause to ponder. This disruption has caused me to rethink, reimagine, reengage and rework stuff that I've been used to doing for a long time and discovering new stuff. And it's almost like I'm loving teaching and learning again. It's, it's, it's an interesting sort of revival. <laughs> and uh, thank you for the help and the role you're playing to, to support that. Darcy, what, 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 what are you, uh, what's cooking in your world right now? <laughs> cooking in my world right now. Well, uh, as, as for people who, know the Trinity Western community and Trinity Western Library. We know, you know, we unfortunately went through a bit of a flood uh, on our lower level where the majority of our books are um, last last fall. And thankfully, nothing was damaged, yeah. but we're in the midst of doing the repairs of that right now. So, so making sure that that's all flowing along nicely. And thankfully, we're seeing very, very good work happening. I was, you know, uh, did, a, did a walk through the, this afternoon. It looks looks great. Um, but a lot of what I'm doing right now is in the midst of this, this, this pandemic that we're in and the crisis that we're in, and as we're shifting to, uh, to, uh, you know, shifting models, shifting how we're going to do things in the fall is making sure that in the eyes of the faculty, particularly the faculty that, that the, what the library can provide is, is, is on their radar. So mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time, uh, liaisoning with faculty, uh, make sure that they are aware of what we can provide. Sometimes pushing pushing people towards librarians. Sometimes I will actually just directly 
lack of a better term, sick a librarian on a faculty member. Hey, you need to go talk to this person about getting their their um, resources up on their Moodle site well, and they're having troubles with finding something. Can we just help them out? Uh, so that's been that's been a lot of what I'm doing. It's just making sure that the library and the and the, and the things that we do are are on the radar and high on the radar uh, for the for the faculty as we're going through a pretty traumatic time for a lot of them having to shift uh, what they've been doing for a lot of them for so long uh, in the classroom into a into an online environment. Yep. Um, as we wind out this episode and we think about this shift or this flip, yeah. um, I would like each of you just to address and talk about how can faculty and students, I put staff in there as well, best utilize the, the services of the library as we move into the fall? I would say right from the library homepage, we have tons of links for the people to get in touch with us, to interact with us. Uh, we've put out feelers to faculty saying, uh, if you're looking for resources for the fall that are perhaps in print and your students can't get access to them, uh, send us what you have and we will try to figure out whether we can get electronic versions of that or whether there are alternatives that we could suggest to you. Uh, we're also talking to faculty about uh, student assignments Mm. And uh, if they want to share with us uh, assignments they're, they're calling for for the fall, uh, we will help uh, them be able to articulate a plan for their students to do the research uh, for that adequately. I can put together steps that students should be taking, things they should be looking for, tutorials that they should follow to get themselves on track with doing research in that environment. And then, of course, we have our, uh, our info desk at TWU.ca email address uh, where anybody with any kind of question about resources or research or citation or whatever uh, can get in touch with us. And uh, several librarians will pick up, uh, one of several will pick up that uh, email and run with it. And uh, we can send people screenshots. We can uh, offer them guidance. And we can help them find resources that they couldn't find find and so on so i'm going to be teaching a course in cross-cultural communication in the fall so i'm going to come to you to work out an assignment on confirmation bias so i think so Great. all right Great. so let's yep. set a date darcy how about you what would what would you suggest it's a it's tough to follow up with what bill has yeah. already said so well uh but one of the key things is to just emphasize is to ask us for for help uh, we we love helping students, faculty, staff, our community borrowers find resources. This is what we live for. Um, it's why we went into it. Um, and when someone presents us with a tough question, I mean, we'll just sink our teeth into it and we won't let go mm -hmm. until we've exhausted every single opportunity possibility uh, to find what you're find what they're they're looking for. Uh, so the most important thing is to just is to contact the people that that can help help you find the resource you're looking for. Um, the books and shelves are great. The databases are great. The, everything else is great, but we are the ones that can help kind of put that all together for them. So even though we may not be able to be all on campus, we are eager to serve in a, in a virtual environment and we just love doing it. Cool. Chin Chin, I know we've covered a lot of territory. Anything to add in there? 
Yeah, I just wanted to uh, also highlight that for international students, I know that probably some of you are not in this time zone, but we're here to help you, you know, because uh, I mean, we provide synchronous and synchronous services, as I mentioned before. So uh, I've been providing like information literacy sessions for students in China, like Emmy Leadership Mandarin Stream, and also going to be interacting with uh, the Great Wall uh, MBA program students in China. So we, we we're there for you. Like we often say that we're the embedded librarianship, where where our users are, right? So you can email us, as Bill mentioned, infodesk at tv.ca is the email to go. Or you can email individual librarians. We're more than happy to set up a Zoom session with you. Like I've done Zoom sessions with students just to show them how to search and explain things in detail synchronously. And you can come as a group as well. So definitely uh, just reach out to us. Don't be shy. Don't hesitate. And the same for faculty too. We're here to help you. Like I've been working with faculty members uh, on different projects as well. So you know we, we are more than willing to help you. Just, um, yeah, give us a shout. And I don't mean... Coming back on what yeah. Darcy was saying about how we love this, my day was dragging a bit yesterday afternoon, and late afternoon we got a request from a professor to identify a bunch of articles that uh, she wanted to get a hold of and wasn't quite sure how to get them. And uh, I picked it up, and my spirits just lifted working through that because that's, that's what I love. And... Uh, Faculty and students need to know that. We love this. You're not bothering us. Okay, so not to put you on the spot. Well, okay, I mean to put you on the spot. So I got about a half a dozen students who are in different time zones by more than like eight hours. I have a contingent of students who are in China, and there's actually a a series of uh, TED Talks on YouTube that I want students to engage with. YouTube is not available for my students in China, could I potentially work with you to figure out either maybe there's alternative platforms where that video is available or alternatives? That's, is that something you can help me with? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'll be happy to point you to some alternative services or uh, you can upload the tutorials to MS Stream. Yeah, we, we can definitely. I, I will be happy to yeah, work with you on that. Good. I, I didn't actually think I was going to get personal help information, but <laughs> talk to a librarian and come away with good stuff. Hey, I want to thank Darcy, Bill, Chin Chin. I just want to, I want to thank you for your time. I know you're, you're extremely busy. So, and I also want to wish you um, well-being. I know this is a, a tough time because I imagine that like Darcy, you were saying you love the challenge, but I have to also imagine you're, you, you love the people and you're missing the people and particularly the, the community of people that we get to serve at Trinity Western. Um, you're probably missing missing the people a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're missing the people. It's uh, the buzz. I'm missing the buzz. Yeah, it, uh, you know, there's there's often a notion that librarians are are introverted people, and that's that's often true. Uh, but we love working with our students and our faculty and staff, and uh, there's there's energy we get from 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 that. So I could I I think we're all looking forward to getting back to some sense about the new normal might be where we can, we can see our students and see each other face to face and that will happen in due time. And we're all looking forward to it. Okay. Well, again, thank you for your time and and I wish you all the best and well-being. Thank you. Thank Thank you you. very much. Thank you. Okay. Again, you're listening to learning matters of bridge to practice and we'll be talking together again real soon. Mm -hmm.